ordination. Um, if you want to be a, a reverend, then you go through an ordination council with your church or denomination or send $25 to somebody on the internet, whatever. You have to go through an ordination council. And you're supposed to do it when you think you're, you're ready. Otherwise, you will fail. Mine was three and a half hours long with 12 to 15 pastors, and they just drilled me with every esoteric theological issue and strange verse that no one had ever heard of before. They were banging me with this stuff. Um, it was quite the horrific experience. But I found a, uh, a ordination exam from somebody who who was somewhat nervous, unprepared, postmodern, pastor wannabe person. His name was Dave, and he was at his ordination council. And they said, Dave, what part of the Bible do you like best? He said, well, sir, I like the New Testament best, sir. Well, what book in the New Testament? Uh, What what, what, what book, sir? Uh, Yes, what book? I think it would be the book of parables, sir. Yes, that's right, parables. Well, would you kindly relate one of those parables to this council? Poor Dave knew he was up against it. But there was a possibility that the members of the council knew no more about their Bibles than he did, so he decided to make a bold attempt and proceeded as follows. Once upon a time, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. And the thorns grew up and choked the man. And he went on, and he didn't have no money, and he met the Queen of Sheba. And she gave that man, sir, a thousand talents of gold and silver and a hundred changes of raiments. And when he was driven along under a big tree, his hair got caught in a limb and left him a-hanging there. Yes, sir. And he hung there many days and nights. And the ravens brought him food to eat and water to drink. He ate 5,000 loaves and two fishes. And one night while he was hanging there asleep, his wife Delilah came along and cut off his hair. And he dropped and fell on stony ground. And it began to rain, and it rained 40 days and 40 nights. And he hid himself in a cave, and he was called to come out from among it. But he could not, because he had just taken a wife. And the man went into the highways and byways and compelled others to come in. He went on and came to Jerusalem, and he seen Queen Jezebel sitting high up in the window. And when she saw him, she laughed, and he said, throw her down out of there. And they threw her down. And he said, throw her down again. And they threw her down again. Seventy times seven, they threw her down. (laughs) And the fragments they picked up of were twelve baskets full. Now whose wife will she be in the days of the judgment? There was no one on the council who felt qualified to question the candidate further. And he was passed. (laughs) If it would have only been that easy. When I read that, I don't know what makes me more nervous the ordinan and his, the, the, the possibilities of his future church or the, the council who didn't recognize where this guy was coming from. They felt that they weren't able to question him. They didn't feel qualified. Well, on one level, all of us are in that parable because we are constantly being bombarded by, whether it's in songs or sermons or, or Internet stuff, Facebook, people using verses. We are, we are constantly being bombarded with people using the word of God, scripture. And quite often the scary thing is we feel unable, not qualified to question. And that is a scary thing for this reason. Because God will be known through his word, pure. And so if somebody is getting his word twisted, they're, they're going to end up in empty religion. They're not going to know God. 
And when somebody who, who's sincere and honest and right, they're, they're, they're trying, and they're told, if you do this, God promises he will do this. Meanwhile, God never said that. God has no intention of keeping that promise, but the word was twisted, and so the person has grabbed hold of it, and they're doing what they think they're supposed to do, expecting God to respond as he's supposed to respond, but he doesn't. And so what do they do? Well, you've got three options at that point. Either A, denial, just going on, pretending like he is, like everything is consistent and working out when you know in your, your heart it's really not. Or number two, practical atheism. You know, you come to church still, and it still comes out of your mouth, but the way you're living... You don't believe it. Or number three, you abandon the faith. You just walk away. Now, there are lots of reasons why people, quote-unquote, fall away. But that is a primary one. They've heard what they think God is supposed to do. They've they've heard what they think things are supposed to be like if they do A, B, and C. And so they do A, B, and C, and it doesn't happen, and they they walk away. What is our our response with this? I mean, if, if this is true then you, the, the, the stakes are pretty high. If we're going to know God, it's not going to become, we're not going to stumble into it by an accident. We, we know him through his word, right and true. If we're going to be transformed, it's going to be through his word that transforms us, right and true. And so we don't want it to, to accept somebody's interpretation purely based on their charisma or their personality or whether they're funny or whether they like the football team we like or all those kind of things. We want go a little bit deeper than that. And so this study, this series, Scripture Twisting, we've, we've decided to, unlike any other series we've, we've ever done, more of a teaching kind of thing, where we, we want everyone to have a toolbox when we're all done with six different rules of interpretation. Now, there are many different rules of interpretation, but if we can master these six, constantly remember these six, they will aid us well as we go through this world. They'll give us confidence how to, of how to interpret the Word of God. Now, you remember the first week we went over this, and if you weren't here, grab the CD. But the first rule was that uh, the bi- biblical examples are not authoritative. Simply put, that biblical examples are not biblical commands. Simply because somebody did something in the Bible doesn't mean we're supposed to do it. Simply because this is the way it happened to somebody in the Bible doesn't mean it's supposed to happen to us that way. Uh, I encourage you again to get the the CD if you weren't here for that. Then last week we looked at rules two and three. Again, if you weren't here, grab the CD, but uh, or you can download it on, online as well. Uh, but rule number two was the Bible interprets itself. We see this all the time. Someone will grab a verse and they'll say, "Here's the verse. Therefore, because of this verse, you need to A, B, C, D." And it sounds right, but we said that a good question that we, we need to ask ourselves whenever we, we start hearing that is, I wonder what else Scripture says about this. Because unless a doctrine summarizes all of what the Bible says about it, it cannot be considered biblical. So this, this proof texting thing is, uh, rule two challenges that. Rule three was the Holy Spirit is necessary for interpretation, and it's corollary was the Spirit will not give a meaning to a text that was not originally intended. In other words, a text cannot mean what it never meant. You know, we kind of open the Bible and kind of look, and we kind of go into a trance, and the first thing that pops into our mind, oh, that's what the Spirit gave. And so you got the Spirit saying one thing to you, and you got a different thing going over here, and the verse means something to you, and it means something different to you. And we got a gazillion Bibles out there. The Word has no authority if, in fact, it doesn't have a single meaning.
And so, so oh, those are the three rules that we've gone over in the past. Today, we're going to go over two more, rules number four and five. We're going to hit one more next week. It's a biggie. Uh, it's going to be somewhat controversial, but it's not like none of the others have been, right? So we're going to be, we're okay. And then we're going to break for our uh, missions conference, which is going to be fantastic. And we're going to come back and wrap this whole deal up. But this takes us to rule number four. So if you've got your notes, if you've got a pen, you're going to want to, to take notes and get ready for your, your life group. Put this down. And rule number four is interpret experience in light of Scripture, not the other way around. Right? You do not interpret Scripture in light of your experience, but interpret your experience in light of Scripture. And this is the way this, this works. We all have experiences in our life. We come to the table having lived life. We've got some stuff behind us. And your experiences put into two different categories. We've got our traditions. And I'm thinking church traditions. These are the way the church I grew up in did baptisms. Sometimes I think that's the only way you're supposed to do it because that's the way my church did it. Or the way my church did communion. Or the way my church did fellowship. Or the way my church did prayer. Or the way my church did holidays. Or the way my church did evangelism. We've got our traditions. Now, traditions are not bad. But we understand that biblical principles usually, hopefully, are going to be that which inform. Our traditions are really just living out in the church context what we believe the Bible teaches. Now, here's the deal. Biblical principles will never change, but the way we live them out does. And sometimes we forget that, and we get our traditions a little bit too close to to the Bible, and we start thinking that they're one and the same. And we just have to keep in mind that not, not always, not always. And what this rule says is that my traditions aren't first and they're going to inform how I interpret the Bible, but we're kind of getting it around the other way. We say, no, the Bible is the bottom line and it informs my traditions. There's a second way we have tradi- uh, experience, though. And we call this personal experience. These are those perhaps existential encounters that we might come across in life, whether it's a dream or a vision or a sense of peace or a uh, coincidence or a happenstance, something that comes in and we encounter it and, it and it changes our outlook. And we would often want to attribute these to God. And they may be. They may be to, uh, of God. But what we're saying is when we have those, those do not trump Scripture. Those come underneath Scripture. Scripture is in judgment on these and will determine for us how much of this experience is legitimate or not. Scriptures. Let me give you a couple examples on this so you know what I'm talking about. Dated a girl in high school. I'm going to call her Sandra. Sandra's mom was a different church than I was, different theological, theological persuasion from myself. And so we would banter back and forth. It was, it was, it was all good. It was fun. But I remember she, her telling me, Mark, I know you can lose your salvation because I've lost mine. Well, we're not talking about a full-blown theological study this morning on eternal security and perseverance of the saints and all, but what we're talking about is how experience is an invalid argument to get to that point. If someone wants to sit down and say, I believe that you can lose your salvation, let me show you the scripture, we're on the same ground, let's talk, we've, we've agreed to an authority. But, but uh, if in fact uh, salvation is not 
associated with our feelings, right? Right. It is a legal right standing before God, not associated with emotion. And so it's awful hard to discern based on my emotions. I feel like God is with me, therefore he is. I feel like he's not, therefore he's not. I feel like I'm saved today, so I am. I feel like I'm not over here, so I'm not. I, I feel I've got strong faith, so I'm saved. I doubt a little bit over here, so I must not be. It's not related to our emotions, uh, another example with this, and you ask someone, are you a believer? And they say, absolutely I am. I went to retreat, and I went outside at night by myself, and I looked up at the stars, and I thought, my goodness, there has to be a God. And I just felt this warm feeling, and I knew there was a God. Yeah, I'm a believer. Well, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's not a bad experience. Is it? That's not a bad experience. But the scripture determines what our salvation is just sensing and feeling and think that's let's go to the word of god so we take this experience and we just put it underneath the word of god and say god what did my experience really mean well maybe it was just opening our eyes to the fact of there being a god it's not necessarily it's not salvation uh we hear this one all the time i've prayed about it and i feel a peace god's given me a peace i know i i've prayed about this i've got a peace to, to leave my husband god's given me that peace well, you hear this kind of thing all the time. And I don't doubt that the person has prayed about it. I'm sure they prayed about it. And I don't doubt that they've come to some emotional settling on this issue. Yeah, probably they have. The question is, did God give that peace or not? And so we say, well, it's an experience, but we're going to put that underneath the word of God. And so we're going to go to Scripture to see about your experience. So we go to 1 Corinthians. To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Now, when we're not doing a full-blown study on divorce this morning, and if you're thinking, you're holding to the second rule that says, I wonder what else Scripture teaches about divorce. It's a good, good question to be asking. But it's not going to differ too radically from what you're reading right, right here. God is not going to speak one side out of his mouth saying no divorce, and the other side saying, well, in your case, it's cool. Don't worry about it. I know that's a messy subject, but God's word has got to be over our, our experience. You, you, perhaps you go on, you say, you know, I've got some friends. I've always been told that friends who aren't Christians are evil and wrong. But you know what? I've got some good friends who don't know Christ. I've got a, a Buddhist and atheist and some cultic person and a new agey person. But you know what? I'm convinced that they are in good standing with God. And this is how I know. Because they are more sincere, they are more loving, they are more grace-giving, they are more kind, they are fun, they are better than most Christians I know. And it's quite unfortunate that may be true in some ways. But still, salvation, whether they're in a right standing with God, that's something I can't call and you can't call. God has to call that. And so we say, this is my experience, but we've got to put it underneath the word of God. Say, what does God say about this? Well, Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no man, no man, no man comes to the Father except through me. You may, may find somebody who says, you know, I've got a dream, had a dream. And God came to me in my dream and told me that I don't have to go to church anymore. There are days I wish I had that dream. You know, that would have been a good one. That would have been a good one. But even so, you've got to take that dream and say, okay, but let me see what Scripture says. And you go to Hebrews 10, 25. It says, let us not give up meeting together, 
as some are in the habit of doing. I love this. Way back in the first century, church wasn't even barely born, and folk were already trying to ditch it. Don't you love this? Um, so you're not alone in this, right? Uh, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Again, is this the only verse that deals with this? No, no, no. Bible best interprets itself. Let's study this. But as you do, you won't find any text that's going to say it's okay to blow off a meeting together. It's okay to blow off the body of Christ. Go on, be your own person. You don't need the body. It's not there. It's just not there. So, so I had this dream, I had this vision, I had this, and especially when my godly friends confirm it, we got to put it underneath the word of God. What's God's word say about this? Now, does this mean all experience is wrong? No, 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 not at all. I think I may have shared this before. I'm at Mayo Clinic, and they just got out of our neurologist's office. He said he thought it was brain cancer. It was a rough deal. I'm being pushed in my wheelchair back right in front of St. Luke's, and... Uh, I'm not real happy about this, as you can imagine. I'm, I'm not uh, freaking out, per se, but I am very sad because I've got two kids at this point. They're never going to know their dad. All these things I wanted to do is not going to happen. Uh, and it was as if a voice... I didn't hear a verbal voice, but it was as if God spoke to me on the inside and said, Hey, Mark, don't worry about it. Things are right on schedule. That's my experience. But you take it to the Word of God... In Romans 8, 28, he says that, that we're convinced, we know, that all things work together for good. Those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This voice I heard, as it were, is really a paraphrase of this text. So your experiences can be good, but they've got to be underneath the authority of Scripture. And let me give you an example how this, we can share a couple different rules, how this pl- plays together in some, some way, a way in which this is often abused. Uh, somebody's reading Romans 13.8, okay? And they're reading it in the, the, the King James. Let's see if we got it, yeah. It says, uh, oh no, don't owe a man, blah, blah, blah. Oh, no man anything, but to love one, oh no man anything, but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Now let's say someone who's reading this is up to their eyeballs in debt. You know what I mean? I mean, they just, their, their cards are maxed out, credit cards, uh, car loans, uh, vacations. They, they, they've got all kinds of stuff. They're just in debt all over the place. And they read, they've got this financial pressure. And they read this and they go, oh, credit is sin. Oh, no, man, nothing. I got it. Oh, yeah, of course. I got the, why was I? So they tear up their credit cards and they find it, and they pull up Major Dave Ramsey and now they're experiencing financial peace because they're out of debt. And their experience is a good one. You know, I was under financial burden and bondage. Don't do that. But financial peace is wonderful. And look at this verse. And they go on a campaign. Credit is always sin. And their experience is helping them interpret this verse. But you know, rule two, right? The Bible best interprets itself. I wonder if any other scripture out there speaks about credit. And again, we're not doing a major theological study on credit. And God has some major things to say about abuse of credit, especially on those on the receiving end of it. Uh, But there are provisions for it at times. So it might be difficult to say that this is always, always sin. Um, So we don't want our, our experience... To, to dictate what Scripture says. Now, let me throw this one out. This is kind of a big one to you these days. Near-death experiences. You know, if you were to check on the New York Times bestselling list, two of the top ten books deal with near-death experiences. Number six, I believe, is um, Heaven is for Real. 
And number two, it's proof of heaven by a guy by the name of Dr. Eben Alexander. Dr. Alexander is a neurosurgeon. I think it was in 2008, he contracted a rare form of meningitis. He's got the pictures of his brain. His brain was covered with the meningitis. It was inoperative at that point. He just wasn't, he said that his brain wasn't working at all. He says that while he was in this coma, he had these wild experiences. He's been on the cover of Newsweek, I think this last October. He's been on Nightline. He's been on Good Morning America telling about his near-death experiences. And so you look at that and you go, what do you do with this? What do you do with this? If you've got your Bibles, look with me to Luke 16 for a moment. Again, we're not doing a full theological study on near-death experiences, although there's not a whole lot there on it. But uh, Luke 6, 16. And we don't have this all, all on the board, but I'm going to start with verse 19 of Luke 16. It says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple. It just meant he had a lot of stuff. He was really rich and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. And then Abraham's going to have this conversation with him and say, you know, no can do. It's not a possibility. There's this huge gap and we can't go over to you and you can't come back. This is just the way it is. So in verse 27, the rich man in hell answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. That'll get your attention, won't it? Someone from the dead shows up. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You know, heaven is for real, but it's not because Colton told us it's for real. It's because scripture tells us it's for real. Um, I love what he's saying here. He's saying, even if someone, you think that if even someone rises from the dead, but I'm telling you, even the experiences, even if they're valid, have to be under the word of God. If they're not willing to listen to the word of God, they won't believe the experiences. Think of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus rises from the dead, and the guards run to the the, the Sanhedrin people, and they say, he rose from the dead. And so they say, we'll pay you money. Do do they all say, well, listen, oh, we're going to follow Jesus then. He rose from the dead. Who can do that? No, they say, We're going to pay you money to lie and tell people that he didn't rise from the dead, tell people that his disciples came and stole his body. You would think that this would would change people, but the word of God is incredibly powerful. And if God's word won't do it, the experiences aren't going to do it either. Now, what do you do with some of these near-death experiences? Um, And there are tens of thousands across the globe um, they're, they have a lot of commonality. There's the tunnel, and there's the bright light, and there's the feeling of warmth and bliss. Um, but you need to know that some of them don't have that. There are uh, Dr. Rawlings, I believe a cardiologist out of Tennessee, did a huge study on the negative uh, experiences, near-death experiences. 
But some of these folk who've had positive ones, you know what? They're not followers of Christ. If you were to check this out, there are a lot of these guys who are far, far from Christ, and yet they're having these positive experiences. So where do these come from? What do you do with these? Because it seems there's an awful lot of them going on across the world. Where do you, where do you come up with this stuff? I don't know, but I'll tell you what Urban Lutzer, pastor of Moody Church, says on this. Uh, he attributes it to none other than Satan. Look what Scripture would say. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades, he pretends, he deceives, as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. Luther would say, can you imagine somebody who's lost and they have this experience and they come back? What are they th- do they feel like they need Christ? They don't need Christ. I've been there. It's great. And they are more secure in their lostness than ever before. Now, I'm not, I don't know if all these experiences are demonic or not. What I do know is your experiences, all the experiences come underneath the word of God. And the word of God will, will, will interpret whether or not heaven's for real or what it's like, anything else. The word of God lets us know that. So that's rule number four. Interpret experience in light of scripture, not the other way around. And that's really just a rule on authority. Um, rule number five is interpret scripture in light of its historical context. Interpret scripture in light of its historical context. You might say, what in the world are you saying? Okay, let me give you an example. I was at the mall the other day, got out of my car, found a note. Picked it up, let me read it for you. It says, Dear Bobby, I know you're not supposed to read other people's mail, but oh well. Dear Bobby, (laughs) I'm on my lunch break and felt my soul needed to write you a note. My mind and heart are filled with memories of last night. How can I thank you? The time we shared together was priceless, just you and me. Life seems so useless and disoriented. Life felt like pulling a wagon with no wheels, filled with lead uphill in a storm. I was sure I couldn't make it, so alone. I wasn't sure what to expect when you came over last night. In all honesty, I was terrified. But just talking with you and holding you and being with you, you breathed new life into me. Thank you for last night. You were so gentle and so tender, so sensitive. I knew you could understand me like no one else could. When you left this morning, I was so very sad to part company. What we shared together last night, well, to try to put it into words would insult the specialness of it. Now, what's going on there? Now, we think we know what's going on there. We don't want to say it in church. That's cool. That's all right. That's all right. Maybe some romantic rendezvous kind of thing. There's some, some trace between lovers. And it's, what if I told you it was signed by mom? Yeah. And then let me give you the, the historical context. Bobby's 25 years old. Only child lives across town. His dad died suddenly six months ago. His mom took it very, very hard. She hadn't touched his stuff. Now, last night would have been his father's birthday. He and his mom put it on the calendar two weeks ago to get together and clean out his office at, at home. As they went through the office, they came through pictures and notes and all of the th- ton of memories, lots of tears, lots of holding each other. And a very healing time, though. By the morning, everything was cleaned out. You know, if you don't understand the historical context... You can interpret it way off. Now, you're not trying to be bad, right? We're not trying to think anything wrong. It's just, if we don't understand the historical context, we can really go in the wrong direction. Now, this is why this rule is is one of the most technical. 
uh, one of the most difficult, uh, one of the easiest to abuse, because the historical, cultural, language barrier stuff, it's, it's not in the text. You can't see it. It's, it's not there. And, and so you have to do something outside of straight scripture in order to try to bring some of those pieces together. Um, let me give you an example from, from Scripture of what I'm talking about. And let me just say this first. If you are reading God's Word and you hit a point, you're going, what in the world? I, and you just don't just skip to the next phrase, next paragraph, just move on. Odds are high that there is either a cultural issue or a language barrier or something there. Now, what this gets to, this is real important because where this, this comes in is this rule helps us to get at our, at our goal. Our goal was the authorial intent, remember? We wanted to figure out what the author was saying to the original audience, what he expected them to get, because that's God's word. Um, when we're doing Bible study, one of the first questions we want to ask, we read the text, is, is how do I apply it? What does it mean for me? Good question, but it's got to be the second question. The first question is, what did it mean for them? As we can figure out what it meant for them, then we can figure out the biblical principle and bring it over, how does that biblical principle look in my life? Uh, Book of Ruth. Let me give you some examples. Uh, You know the story of the Book of Ruth, right? Ruth, I mean, Naomi and and Elimelech, her her husband, she got two boys, they go down to Moab, the boys get married to Moabitess girls, and then all the men die. So Naomi's down in Moab with two Moabitess daughters-in-law. One of them goes back home. And then uh, Naomi goes back to Israel with Ruth. And a lot of the rest of the book is, is Naomi and Ruth interacting, blah, blah. I've heard a message on the book of Ruth titled, How to Get Along with Your In-Laws. Now, you have to ask yourself, is, do you think that is the reason why the original author wrote the book of Ruth. We've got it in our Bible so that we know how to get along with our in-laws. That's the original purpose. That's why that text is in our Bible. That's what this guy wanted these Israelites to know that he was writing to, how to get along with your in-laws. Is that the reason? Uh, if not, we should get along with our in-laws. Um, but we ought not to go to the book of Ruth to figure that, that, that out. David and Goliath. First Samuel 17. Now, I'll tell you what. The scary thing is this will preach. And it's easy to, be, uh, to use this kind of stuff as, as a pastor. You want to slay your giants? David, David took care of his giants. He slew those guys. And you got giants in your life. I know you do. And you can slay them. But this is how you got to do it. You got to do it the same way David did it. David went down to the, the, the brook and he picked up five stones. And if you've got these five stones in your hip pocket, you too can take out your giants. First stone is the stone of praise. And David was praising God. And if you read the text, he's praising God. And, and whenever Israel would go into war, Judah would go first. And Judah was the tribe of praising God. And if you will be praising God, regardless of what happens, you have the ability to slay your giants. Second stone that David had in his back pocket was the stone of, of small groups. Because it wasn't just one stone. You can't use one. He had five stones. We've got to do this together. And you've got to be in with other people. Or you're just not going to make it. The third stone that David had, he pulled out this, this stone of... Of tithing, you know, because if you're tithing, then you know your values are right. And, you, and on it, you can name the fourth and fifth stones, whatever you want to name them. Please don't be taking notes right now. Going, what's the name of those stones? <laughs> this is farce. This is I'm just goofing up here. Okay, you, you you ask yourself, was this the purpose that the original author, First Samuel 17, is in your Bible and mind so that we know how to slay our giants in life? Is that the reason why it's there? 
Is that what he was trying to get across to these guys? Uh, Joseph, man of many coat, many color coat fame, uh, in Potiphar's wife. Remember this story? And we know, we know Joseph, he gets sold into to Egypt and he gets bought by Potiphar, who's like the uh, general, minister of defense of Egypt. And Joseph goes to Potiphar's house and he raises in ranks. And before you know it, he's in charge of everything Potiphar's got. But Potiphar's wife notices Joseph. You know the story. And she starts flirting and she starts trying to seduce him. And Joseph stands strong, though, and he, he won't be seduced by Potiphar's wife. Ends up in prison. He's framed and on and on and on. I've heard a message. How to avoid sexual temptation. Now, should we avoid sexual temptation? Please say yes. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Absolutely. But is that the purpose of that text? The author was writing, did he say, I think those Israelites need to know how to avoid sexual temptation. When they get trapped by an Egyptian woman, I just want them to know. Is this what he's thinking? Is that the purpose of the text? What is the purpose of that text? It's easy to make those kind of things up. Uh, and I can preach those kind of things. And if you throw enough you know, dead dog stories and Baptist bus stories in there, people are crying and they're meeting you at the end of the church and going, oh, that was just an incredible message. Oh, that was, that was phenomenal. That was incredible. And it may have been entertaining or not, but it was not God's word, which means it will not transform. It will not draw us closer to him. We've basically wasted our time in church. God's word alone needs to be our, uh, our standard. Now, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Um, When you're reading and you start, the red flags actually fly a little bit. I don't know what this means. Again, it's probably because you have come across a historical or cultural issue. Don't just blow it off, but let me give you an example. In Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Verse 9, he says, And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corbin, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that that you have handed down. Now, you first see this, and you go, what is this Corbin thing? It doesn't really explain it, because part of the cultural historical stuff is it's not telling us, hey, you in 21st century America, let me tell you, we didn't have electricity, and we didn't live very far, and we only lived to 45 back then. It doesn't tell us those things. So what does this Corbin mean? Well, you study it through, and you find out that that, uh, folk could dedicate their life to God, all of their stuff to God. I'm guessing that if you're following Christ, you probably had a prayer sometime along the line where you said, God, everything I have is yours. Same sort of thing. It was much more official, though. They said, God, all of my stuff is yours. And they, they, they can keep it in their bank account and use it when they get hungry. But now their mom and dad, because there's no welfare system going on, are, are struggling and they need something. They need help. And they're saying, you know what, I'd love to help you out, but... It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. Sorry. Can't give it to you. Sorry about that. It's helpful when we know some of the historical elements that are going on. Staying in Mark, over in chapter 14, in verse 13, Jesus had just come into Jerusalem, triumphal entry. He's getting ready to have the Passover that night. 
And uh, he comes, brings his disciples together. And verse 13, it says, So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. Well, at this time and place in history, Judas is standing right here with the rest of the disciples. Judas has got 30 pieces of silver in his pocket. He's already cut the deal. He's looking for a place. If Jesus would have said, we're going to be having Passover night at Harry's house, Judas would have known, ah, Harry's house. I'm going to slip away and tell the, 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 the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, that they can find Jesus at Harry's house tonight. Um, so Jesus doesn't want to do that. He knows Judas has that money. So he sends two disciples in, Judas not one of them, with this kind of clandestine way of figuring things out. When you see a man carrying a jar of water, we might say, this is going to be pretty common. But no, it wouldn't have been. Because historically, the women carried the water. For a man to be carrying the water, he just stuck out like a sore thumb. Um, you say, okay, we've got to help me out here, though. If I've got to find the historical elements, the cultural elements, but if they're not in the text, they're not standing out like a sore thumb, they're not in between, there. How, how do I find these? It's a great question. Let me give you uh, two things, two tools. First of all, a good study Bible. I, 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 listen, you're going to have to invest a little bit if you're serious about Bible study. It's not going to be a gazillion dollars. But can you imagine you've got a finished carpenter coming over to your house and he brings a straight saw and that's it? And you say, can you do the work we need done with this straight saw? He says, it'll be good enough. Listen, those other things cost so much money. I can't invest in that. Well, you're going to get what you pay for, right? And you'll dismiss the guy and you'll bring somebody in who's got the, 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 the nice system. If, in fact, you're serious about studying God's Word, uh, you need to invest a little bit. A good study Bible. This is an NIV study Bible. Uh, I've got one that I'm breaking in on my office, an ESV, English Standard Version Study Bible. There's a MacArthur Study Bible and a Ryrie Study Bible and a Criswell Study Bible and Life Application Bible. And basically, figure out an affinity group and there's a study Bible for you out there. Um, but they're not necessarily all... Good. They're not, they're not equal. I say, when I say that, I say they're not equal in scholarship. Um, so I've got a list of some of those if you're, if you're interested. But a study Bible is great because at the beginning of the book, it'll have multiple pages that will say, this is the author, this is when he wrote it, these are the recipients, this is the theology, this is some of the cultural stuff that was going on you need to be aware of. And then as you're reading, you've got the Bible up here, but down here are all these notes that basically help us understand the culture and the traditions and those kind of things that are going on. We just have to keep in mind that God's Word is up here. This is not God's Word. This is man can err. So we just got to keep that in, in mind uh, where that comes from. So a good study Bible. A second thing. Let's say you've got a good study Bible, but you want to go a little bit further because there's only so much they can deal with. A good commentary. Now, the last week of our series, I'm going to have in the bulletin or in our, our notes some, some of these resources named. But a good, what a commentary is, is a specific book on a specific book of the Bible where they really go through it in depth, one verse at a time. Now, what's really important, please, please hear me on this. All commentaries are not created equal. Some of them are written by liberal folk, non-saved people. I've seen one written by a witch, a UFO folk. They're just some strange stuff. And so if you go to Barnes & Noble and pick out a commentary on Isaiah, and you don't know who wrote it, you could be in for a lot of trouble. Please don't do that. You, just, you can email me anytime you want. I have got a, a booklet, Sound Solid Commentaries, for each book in the Bible. I will be happy to share that 
with you. Um, a good commentary is what you need. Now, let me give you a couple of caveats as we do this. Because you can get into this historical stuff. If you are a, a history buff, you can, oh, this is exciting. You can get into this. Oh, this is such a fun thing. First thing you need to do is differentiate between Scripture and alleged, alleged historical documentation. What in the world do I mean by that, right? Uh, you need to search out the history, but you need to hold it with an open hand. Uh, I have heard, I don't know how many messages on the nativity, and I've heard some folk given a lot of time in their message to how this was really a cave, or how this was really a, a stable, but it was located off the beaten path, or how this was the first floor of a two-story building, and the guys slept on the second story, and the first story is where they did parking garage for all their animals, or somebody was in my face, and she was all upset that this was none of those things. It was a special building specifically for their pets. And you go, some of this historical stuff you need to study, but you just need to hold it uh, gingerly, 